So Kelly has messed with me already on a rainy and cold day, and she's talking about going to the beach. I love the beach. I want to be at the beach. So uh, how many of you love playing games? Card games, trivia games, board games, strategy games. I, I personally love them all. And there's several different categories of games that we can play. First, there are solo games, games you play by yourself. You probably know the most popular of these, Solitaire. But what about the Rubik's Cube? And remember Simon? Old school. I went old school on you guys. You see, to play these games, you don't need anyone else. They are individual games and by design are to be played alone. And then you have a category of competitive games, games like Connect Four or Battleship and probably the most famous Monopoly. You play these games with others, but we would not say that we play them together. No, by nature, the people you play with are your opponents. The goal is to beat them or defeat them. And then finally, there's this newer category of games called cooperative games. And I found these games to be the most fun. Games like Pandemic, Robinson Crusoe, and my personal favorite, Forbidden Island. You see, in cooperative games, players don't compete against one another. No, instead, they have a common goal. So players either win or lose together. The fun comes from the camaraderie, the shared experience, the togetherness, if you will. Well, today we're going to look at a cooperative psalm because this psalm is not intended to be played alone, nor is it intended to be played against others. No, it is intended to be played with one another. The fun comes from the camaraderie and shared experience and unified worship that takes place as the community of faith, the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, pursue a common goal, the worship of their great God. Take a quick overview look with me at Psalm 95. Look at all of these cooperative words used here, these plural pronouns that communicate to us that every aspect that Psalm 95 is going to call us to today is designed to be done together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now Larry did a wonderful job last week highlighting the beauty and the importance of unity within the church. How good it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And today's psalm is going to show us what we do together when we are unified. And the things that we do that cultivate that unity. So as we look deeper into our passage together, do not lose sight of this reality. That all that we are going to be called to do today in this passage, we are called to do together. And in that effort, let me pray for us. God, would we answer your calls today to worship you together with one another by your spirit and your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, Psalm 95 follows a pattern of three calls and three causes. 
which Alan Ross's language is helpful for us today. These calls are exhortation to God's people, to us, to worship. And the causes are the reasons why, the motivation for this worship. Look with me at the first few verses of Psalm 95. We will see that the first call is to sing and shout. Verse 1 reads this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Did you hear the call at the beginning of this psalm? The psalmist is saying, come on, come with me. And his call implies movement. The word could be translated, move it, or let's get going. It's emphatic. So why such urgency? The urgency has everything to do with where we are going. You see, he is calling us into the presence of God. The journey culminates with us before the face of God. And so the psalmist calls us to come on, move it, let's get going because we are going into the presence of God. And what will we do when we get there? Several words are used here. We will sing, we will shout, we will make a joyful noise, we will give thanksgiving. Some of your translations say we will extol. So I've titled this first call, Sing and Shout, because the psalmist is at least after these two things, that we would sing and then we would shout. Now the singing that we're called to here is not our sometimes low-volume singing under our breath, like I do sometimes. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. No, what is being described here is singing at the top of your lungs. And the shout is not subtle. It could be translated as a war cry. For those of you who have seen the movie Braveheart, it is the William Wallace freedom shout at the end of the movie. And I believe this shouting aspect that verse 1 calls us to in our context today are those triumphant declarations that some people make at the preaching of God's word. The amens and the hallelujahs and the praise be to God's. You see, we need more of this in our church services today. God is too good for us to hold these back. And Psalm 95 calls us to do just this when we are together. In describing the singing and shouting commanded by this passage, one biblical commentator wrote this. The effect of the congregation performing in this way would be deafening. He said it would be deafening. Now, I don't know if you watch sports or not, but the Seattle Seahawks, the NFL football team, have given their fans the title 12th man since their loudness of their cheers has an impact on opposing teams. They actually influence the game. They smashed the Guinness Book of world records with cheers of 136.6 decibels. It's loud, but I want you to watch it 
so that you understand how loud this is. don't know if our speakers do justice to just how loud this is. Isn't it astounding at how loud we can be when we are truly passionate about something? If sports isn't your thing, imagine just concerts that you go to and how loud the people sing at those concerts. So church, what do you cheer for? What are you so passionate about that it causes you to raise your voice? That you are willing to shout without any concern of what other people around you may think. You see, football is just a sport. It's a silly game. But Psalm 95 says that God is the rock of our salvation. What a beautiful title. Solid, firm, rescuing, saving. When we realize what this means, the only natural response is bold, loud, enthusiastic, joy-filled, endless praise. And it does not stop there. The psalmist gives us a cause for this exuberant worship. He reminds us that God is great. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The cause for our singing and shouting is that the Lord is a great God and a great king. And the psalmist is not intending to communicate that God is simply one of many gods. No, but that of all the idols of the people around them, the idols that they worship and think to be gods, that our God is above them all. He is superior to all. And in verses 4 and 5, he uses this beautiful creation imagery to communicate God's greatness. The depths of the earth, and the heights of mountains. You may know this already, but in the Pacific Ocean, between Guam and the Philippines, it lies the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest part of the ocean. It is over 36,000 feet below sea level. That's almost seven miles deep. If you look at the slide, it just gives you a feel of how deep that is. And on the border of Nepal and China is Mount Everest, which is the highest mountain at just over 29,000 feet. That's five and a half miles high. Church, this is deep and this is high. And this psalm tells us that God holds these in his hand. And notice he doesn't say hands. It says hand singular. 
It only takes one of his hands to hold the greatest depths that we know and the greatest heights that we see. For he made it all. And if giving these vertical extremes were not enough, the biblical author gives us horizontal references as well. He gives us the extremes of the sea and dry land in verse 5. And I've put together this diagram just to visually display what the psalmist is trying to verbally communicate. God's greatness is infinitely deep and infinitely high and infinitely wide. The psalmist wants us to know that God is not simply great, but that he is the greatest. He's not just worthy, he's infinitely worthy. So why would we, his people, not sing and shout? What would stop us from declaring his greatness boldly and as loudly as we possibly can? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to practice and answer this call together. Even those watching from home live stream, we want you to join with us in singing praises to this great God. To obey this call together to sing and shout and to quote Elf, to sing loud so that all may hear. Church, we ought to set a new world record because we're not cheering on a silly sports team. No, we are worshiping the great God and the great King. And so let's give God his due together this morning and sing loudly to him. Church God deserves our exuberant passion, passionate singing every time we sing. Not just this morning, whether you sing here in church together, whether you sing in your small groups or your life change classes, wherever you are, we sing with passion because he is such a great God. And as we pick up our passage, feel the freedom and answer the call to shout when you are reminded of God's greatness by the preaching of the word. There should be some amens and some hallelujahs and some praise be to God's. Not because I'm such a great preacher, but because he is such a great God and is worthy of those praises. So, we look back into our text and we see the second call is a call to get low. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, O come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And again, we have this call, this call to come. And again, we see this as a cooperative activity. Let us do this together. But new aspects to our cooperative worship are added. We are called to worship, to bow down, and to kneel. Notice how each moves us lower and lower and lower in posture before this great God. All of these words indicate a voluntary self-humbling displayed in our physical posture. John Goldengay writes this. He says, we are bodies and not merely spirits. And what we do with our bodies expresses our real selves. Listen to what he says next. If there is no physical self-lowering, there can hardly be inner self 
lowering. So we move from this call to exuberant singing and shouting in verses 1 and 2 to this humble call to get low in verse 6. From reaching as high as we can in worship with our voices to getting as low as we possibly can in worship with our bodies. Both of these expressions are pleasing to God and expected by Him. And the central object of this prostration, this worship, is none other than the Lord, our Maker. He's our Maker in a couple of senses here. He's our Maker in the sense that He created. He created us. But He's also our Maker in the sense that He has made us His people. Salvation. This is the cause given for this voluntary, self-humbling act of worship. And we read this in verse 7. The reality that God is our shepherd. Look at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You see, he's not everyone's God. He's our God. Everyone's not his people. We are his people. And then we have this beautiful, affectionate, biblical imagery of God as our loving shepherd and we as his sheep. This this wonderful reality, this reality is the cause for our physical, voluntary self-humbling. So what I would like for us to do is once again observe this call together. And God's word is going to stretch us here. It's good to be stretched by God. So Daniel is going to play some instrumental music. And if at all physically possible, you will stand, you will face your chair, you will kneel on the floor, and you will bow into your chair. For you at home, you're going to join us as well by kneeling and prostrating yourself on the floor in your own home. And I'm going to read another one of those beautiful shepherding passages from God's word to you. So please stand. If you're at all physically possible, turn, kneel, bow into your chair, and listen to the word of God from Ezekiel. Reflect upon God as your shepherd as you hear these words. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. 
I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. I will feed them. You may stand and take your seat now. So church, once again, this is not something that we do just today. God is deserving of our bowing and kneeling before him much more frequent than we currently practice. Whether it be here in church together, whether it be in your small groups, whether it be in a, even a life change class or a Bible study that you're doing, find ways to answer this call to get low. So, so far we've seen the first call, which is to sing and shout because God is great. We've seen the second call to get low because God is our shepherd. And now we have our third and final call, and it's a call of warning. It's a call to repent and believe. Look at the second half of verse 7 and following. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. The psalmist is taking his readers back to Exodus chapter 17, which they would have known very well. You know this very well. And if you remember, the Israelites had been set free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had seen the power of God through the ten plagues. They had witnessed God's mighty hand in the crossing of the Red Sea. And most recently, they experienced God's tangible provision for them as he sent them manna to eat from heaven. And then we read in Exodus chapter 17 that at Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And then here we see it. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then in verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they had tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the psalmist is warning his readers against testing God like the wilderness generation had. And how had they tested God? Listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say in reference to our passage in Psalm 95. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then in verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So this test is a test of faith. The test question 
is do we believe or not? The hardening of the heart in verse 8 of our psalm is called an unbelieving heart in verse 12 of Hebrews. So it was unbelief that prevented them from entering God's rest. So the call here is to repent and believe. You see, all of our sinful actions, thoughts, feelings, words flow from an unbelieving heart. So the psalmist warns us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be like that unbelieving generation. Instead, believe and believe today. The beauty of this call is that it is always today. This is a timeless call. So what will we do today? Will we harden our hearts in disbelief? Or will we soften our hearts in belief? And the psalmist does not leave this third call to believe without a cause. This call, just like the other ones, has a motivation. And that motivation is that God offers rest. Look at verse 11. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. You see, since their unbelief resulted in them not entering God's rest, then the inverse means that belief means that we can have rest. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and listen to this, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And back to Hebrews chapter 4, reads this, the promise of entering his rest still stands. That is good news. For we who have believed enter that rest. It does not matter who you are or what you have done. If you will simply answer this call to repent and believe, you will receive God's promised rest. And as with the previous two calls, this call has cooperative aspects to it. In our Hebrews chapter 3 passage, we are called to exhort one another daily towards belief. We do this in church, we do this in small group, we do this in life change, we do this in corporate prayer. We do this when we speak God's word to one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and even rebuke one another and remind one another of the beautiful implications of the gospel to our lives. We do this because we are extending God's offer of true rest to those we deeply love. Now there may be no better way for us to answer this call to repent and believe together this morning than to take the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Apostle Paul was talking about the Lord's Supper, he says this, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, even within the instructions of the Lord's Supper, there is this call to repent 
and believe. This call to examine our lives. So before you take of the elements this morning, take time to self-reflect and examine your own heart. Pray and ask God to search you and reveal your heart. And as he makes you aware, repent of any areas of your life where there is unbelief. And then believe. Ask God to give you faith. And then commit to walk in obedience to that faith as he gives you the ability. But if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this timeless call is for you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Instead, repent and believe The today in Psalm 95 can be your today. The day that you admit to God that you have grumbled, that you have quarreled, that you have tested him. A day to confess to him that you have not believed in him. But then today, you repent of those sins. And you believe in him as your only hope for true rest. So instead of taking today's supper, you would simply talk to God and tell Him that you desperately want the rest that only He can offer to those who believe in Him. So church, on the night in which He was betrayed, Jesus, He took bread. And after giving thanks, He broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this also in remembrance of me. So church, we are going to respond and answer this last call together as we take the Lord's Supper. And if you would, wait Wait for everyone else to receive their elements so that we can proclaim our faith in Jesus together as one. So while they're passing out the elements, spend that time reflecting, asking God to search your heart for any areas of unbelief and repent and believe. And then once everyone has received their elements, I will lead us towards taking that together as well. Those of you who are looking for a gluten-free option, there's one in the back of the sanctuary.